Good morning. There are times in a message where you hope to at least get one point through. And today I'm going to really expand my hope and I hope to get two things through. One's at the beginning of the message and one will be at the end of the message. Decisions. We all have to make them. We all have different idiosyncrasies on how we do that. Some of us will seek advice and counsel from other people as to what we should do. Uh, some will get all the facts and figures and, and almost to the point of analysis paralysis. Others will worry about the decision they're going to make. Then others, after they make the decision, will worry about the decision they make. So I figure one of the best people we can learn how to make decisions is Jesus. When Jesus made decisions, what did he do? What were the steps that he took? And so in his decision of moving certain number of disciples to what we and he would later call apostles, he had some decisions to make because he was going to choose 12 individual people to, from among his disciples, become apostles. So prior to that decision, what did he do? And in Luke chapter 6, starting with verse 12, gives us an indication of what Jesus did and does in order to make decisions. It says this, It was at this time when he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Notice it wasn't a casual prayer. Notice it wasn't a, one of those five-minute prayers. He spent the whole night in prayer with God. Now, if you've ever participated in a 24-hour prayer vigil, usually we don't ask people to spend 24 hours in prayer. We usually ask them to come for an hour, and those who are really um, gung-ho about it may sign up for more than one hour. But after that, and if people are honest, they go, huh. After about five minutes, I kind of ran out of things to say to God. And so they start to sing hymns or do other things as a part of worship because, after all, an hour is a long time. Jesus spent all night with God. Now, why I don't think it was difficult for Jesus to spend a whole night with God? Because he had a relationship with him. Let's use this on a human scale. If you don't know somebody and you have no idea what their interests are or whatever, 
you know, we do the certain things that we do. Hi, how are you? How's it going? And quite frankly, we don't care the answer. And when they actually try to tell us, we look very bored and try to figure out somebody else that we can talk to because we don't really want the answer. We don't know these people and it just don't care. If you've had like friends in high school and you're a number of years away from high school and you hadn't seen them for a while, a lot of times you'll have and you'll pass time talking about all the good old days or bad old days in high school and remember Susie so-and-so and Mike whatever his name was and we laugh and whatever and if that was the entire relationship you had once you are over with the good old days, you find, again, it's almost like that, well, how are you doing now? And I really don't care. But if you have a relationship with someone and a strong relationship, let's say, for instance, a husband and wife who are in a good relationship. I know there are a lot of husbands and wives that aren't. But if you're in, you can have that conversation and time will just pass and you're not wondering what is it I'm going to talk about because there are lots of things to talk about because you have that relationship with someone. So Jesus spent the whole night with God, and it wasn't difficult. And I suspect not only was he seeking direction and the will of God into who of the 12 was he going to choose out of the number of disciples that he had, but I also believe, and it is not recorded, so I believe this, that not only did he pray to determine who should be the 12, but he prayed for each of the 12 he was going to select because selecting those 12 were going to change their lives and their destiny forever. Now, my proof of that is there was a time towards the end of Jesus' ministry when he says, to Peter, Peter, Satan seeks to shift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. So during this time, I think Jesus is getting who he should appoint as the 12 and praying for them. Then it says, and when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, we also named as apostles. Now, I want to take this event and go to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, starting with verse 13. And it says this, And he went up to the mountain and summoned those who he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. So there was a purpose to their calling. There was a purpose of the 12, which was going to be different than just the disciples. He was going to call them to preach. He was going to call them to cast out demons. And we're going to see he's going to give them other things that they are to do as a part of their ministry. And then he tells them who, who it was. And he appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to them he gave the name Boanderus, which means sons of thunder. And Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, 
and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, if you take a look at this result, at the beginning, you would wonder, well, maybe he made some mistakes. Because certainly he didn't call a bunch of qualified people. He called a bunch of fishermen. He called a tax collector who was considered a sinner. He called someone who was a, a political zealot. He even called someone who betrayed him. But he knew the qualities of each of the people he called, and he did not call them for where they were. He called them to where he was going to take them. You see, the difference between Peter and Judas, Peter, yes, he denied Jesus three times, but ultimately he repented. Judas betrayed Jesus and was sorry, but he did not repent. And he did not take Jude, Jesus by surprise that Judas would betray him. And a lot of times we think, unless the decisions came out perfectly, that somehow God wasn't in it. Sometimes God causes us to walk those difficult roads for his purpose and his will. And so when we pray and when we seek the guidance of God, and we truly do as opposed to seek to just blame God for something. And you know you do. It's like, well, I'm just going to do this. And if it, whatever happens, well, we don't say this directly, but it's kind of what we mean. Well, it's God's fault. Jesus prayed. He understood each of the 12. And he knew 11 of them once they saw the resurrection, would be changed. And the other he knew perfectly well because the scriptures required him to be betrayed. So what does he do with these twelve? He gives them some instruction. So I want you to look in Matthew. We're going to spend the rest of our time in Matthew. And we'll start with verse 1 through 5. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Then jumping over to verse 5 because we've already named the 12. These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them do not go in the way of the Gentiles or nor in the way of any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper, cast out the demons. Freely you receive, freely give. Jesus gives his apostles the same power, if you will, that he has performed. He told them to preach the kingdom, the same message that he's been preaching. And we mess up when we preach a message different than what pre Jesus preaches. And he tells his apostles, 
I want you to cast out demons. And we've seen Jesus do that. I want you to heal all kinds of diseases. And we've seen Jesus do that. He says, I even want you to raise people from the dead. And we will see in Jesus' ministry the continuation of that. Notice Jesus doesn't give his disciples and his apostles less authority than he had. They are to perform the very same things he performed. Now later we will see that sometimes they have a problem because of their lack of faith. It's not because of the lack of the power of God. And it wasn't because of the lack of the authority that he gave them to conduct their ministry. But he limits it to a certain extent. He goes, I don't want you to go to the Gentiles. I don't want you to go to the Samaritans. You're to stay in Israel. Because the scriptures continually say to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles, to the Greeks. The message was always to go first. It wasn't going to be exclusively to the Jew, but the Jew was to have the opportunity first to receive the gospel. And in his instructions, it's why I think these instructions are here at the beginning, and he will give additional instructions and further instructions. For instance, after the resurrection, he goes, I want you to go to all the nations, the remotest part of the earth. You start in Jerusalem and you go to Judea and, and Samaria and to the other remotest part of the earth. And he commissions them and they are to then preach. And we see later that Peter opens up the ministries to the Samaritans and he opens up the ministries to the Gentiles. But Jesus in his initial instruction says, I'm limiting where you're to go right now. You're to go First, to the Jews. He tells them, you receive the power of God at no cost. Therefore, you're not to charge for the power of God. Freely you receive, you freely give. Which is kind of different from many of the ministries that we see on television where if only you will send a certain amount of donation, you will get some cloth or something which will heal you. That's not scriptural. Freely you receive, freely give. Then he says, do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts. Your ministry is not a money-making opportunity. It's ministry, not a business. Or a bag for your journey, or even two coats, or a sandal, or a staff, for the worker is worthy of his support. So he said, as you go, there will be people who will assist you in your ministry, not to make you rich, but to allow you to participate and continue further in ministry. In whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy and stay at his house until you leave that city. Jesus says, when you go, find out who's the people who are hospitable. 
Go to that person's house. And don't go to another's house. Because you know what we do. We go to the one place, but then we meet somebody else who has a better house. With microwaves and, and soccer beds and whatever. He says, no, no, the first person you go to in that city, you lodge there and you don't go elsewhere until you leave that city. And as you enter the house, give it your greeting. If it is a house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it's not, take your blessing of peace. It's interesting. Oftentimes we will say, God bless you. Or we will, I don't think I've ever heard anybody say, I give you my peace. Usually because we're in so much chaos, we don't have much peace to give. But if someone, think of this, if somebody were to say, because most of the time when we, when we hear God bless you, it's usually when you, after you sneeze, which is really unfortunate. Because you know the reason people, the, the original reason people said God bless you after you sneezed? Because they thought you were casting out a demon, so they were trying to say God bless you to keep that demon from coming back. So it's a lousy reason to say it. It's nice to hear God bless you, but it's also nice to hear God bless you and other times other than when you sneeze. But have you ever some, heard somebody after saying God bless you, go, you know, I'm taking it back. I don't want God to bless you. Oh, that's pretty rude. Jesus, if you're not worthy, this isn't a game. When you're asking God to bless or give peace, it's because God does. It's not a game. Whoever not receive you nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Don't let what happened there affect what happens in the future. Leave that behind. And I won't bore you. I literally did this one time outside of Fresno. I've shared that at times, and if you want to know, I can share that again. But I, I literally, on Highway 99, after I got out of the city limits of Fresno, I stopped the car, got out, and shook the dust off of my feet. I mean, I was upset. Um, but what they're trying to say is, don't let that influence your future ministry. Just because someone treated you badly doesn't mean everybody in the future is going to treat you badly. You go with a fresh and renewed optimism that you're going to give good news. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. That's how serious. I mean, if you, almost everybody who even has no connection with Genesis knows about Sodom and Gomorrah and how fire and brimstone rained down and obliterated those places. And if you know a little bit more about the story, it's because a couple of angels showed up at Lot's house to find out if there were any righteous people there and how despicable they handled it and what Lot did to protect those visitors. And with all the fire and brimstone falling down on that wicked city, Jesus says, in the day of judgment, 
when God judges, whatever town treated you badly, it's going to be worse for them. That's how much Jesus is invested in ministry of his people. You don't take it personal. You move on. Because somebody rejected the word of God, you don't sit and pout. You move on to the next person and say, God, give them another opportunity because I know what you just said. And then the unfortunate thing is we think, well, God has given us this ministry and therefore everything is going to be perfect. And when we say something, everybody will accept it. And, and if we're called as a pastor, then the churches will be filled and everybody will love what we do. And if we're teaching Sunday school, everybody will show up and there'll never be a person who ever misses a, a time. Or if we teach... Uh, in a seminary or some type of thing that, that every student will get it and will just be the next Billy Graham and they aren't. He says this, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. It's a hard world out there. And the only protection basically you have as a sheep is a lot of wool. Makes you look bigger. Makes it harder to bite you. So be shrewd as serpents. Serpents have this thought of being very cunning in what they do. And he goes, understand where you are. Be cunning, but be innocent as doves. Just because you're shrewd and sharp doesn't mean you're to then be despicable to be innocent. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my name's sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Now, in the initial ministry that these 12 have, we aren't recorded that they were ever handed over to kings and governors. We are in the book of Acts, where those types of things happen. That's why I think what this is, is this is a basic instruction for ministry. But it doesn't mean everything that's going to happen in the initial ministry is going to happen. Jesus is just preparing them, saying, you're going to get opposition. But when you do, and when they send you to the governors, it's so that you can witness to them. So that you can be a Because you generally, because you're a poor fisherman, aren't usually going to go before a governor or a king. It's only the princes and the powerful get to go before. But because of your persecution, you'll get an opportunity to testify to them. So instead of being depressed, look at it as the opportunity. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say. For it will be given in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Now this is not in contravention to what Peter tells us to give a reason for the hope that is in us. 
That isn't an opportunity when we are not being persecuted, but we're saying, well, why do you believe in Jesus? And it gives us an opportunity to express, to do that apologetics, to say why it is that we are a believer. So we're prepared for that. But when it comes to when you're on trial and Jesus is, is being persecuted in you because of your ministry, saying, don't worry about what you're going to say because the Spirit of God is going to testify for you. He's going to speak in you. And just as it seems to even get worse, brother will betray brother to death. And a father is child, and children will raise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. What about the abundant life? I thought when we, when we witness to people, we say, Jesus is going to give you a wonderful life. It's an abundant life. It's going to be filled with happiness. And Jesus goes, yeah, until you start testifying about me. And then people are going to hate you. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. So he's saying, they're going to persecute you. You don't got to have to keep hanging out at that same town. Go somewhere else. If they're not getting the message, stop wasting your time giving them a message that they don't receive. Go to another city and participate in ministry. So go to the next. For truly I say to you that you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Now, this is why I think this is a dualistic message and ministry, instructions about ministry. Because Jesus is going to send them out on various occasions. But they're not necessarily going to be persecuted in every city to flee to every city in the initial parts of the ministry. So what I think Jesus is saying here is two things. There's going to come a time when his disciples are living in the last days before he comes that you're going to receive persecution. He's saying, move. And before you have finished moving throughout Israel, you keep testifying. You keep doing ministry. And though it may seem like it's go forever, before you run out of towns to go to, I'm coming back. But I also believe that he's giving them current instructions to say, I want you, because I told you, don't go to any place but to Israel. And before you finish running around doing all these things, I'm going to meet you again. I don't think it's a part of eschatology fully. I think it's part of eschatology, and I think it's part of practical application for these particular disciples. But see, I've already told you more than I know, so I'll let you. Most people look and say, well, this is about purely about eschatology. But I think he's giving them instructions for now 
and them instructions for after the resurrection and us instructions for his return. then he says something, and this is what I hope to get as my second point. A disciple, not just an apostle, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. Jesus says, a disciple is never going to be better than his rabbi. So if they hated Jesus, guess what? They're going to hate you. You're not better than Jesus. But we think we are. Because we think our hardships are unjust. And how dare they do that? And Jesus says, you're going to be not above me. You're going to be nor a slave above the master. It is enough. It is sufficient for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. That blows me away. Because it says it is enough to be like him. I am so far unlike him, it is amazing. But he says, it's enough to be like me. It's sufficient to be like me. Can you imagine hearing those words from Jesus? I go, God, I'm only close to being like you because of your grace. But I am so unlike you that if I were half like you, that would be enough. But he says, no, no, it is sufficient to be like me. If they called the head of the house Beelzebub, or Satan, how much more will they malign the members of the, his household? Saying, again, they are saying about me these things. They are going to say those very same things about you. Therefore, do not fear them. Be courageous. Kind of sounds like another person like Joshua. For there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim it upon the housetops. Do not fear those who can kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul. In hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. 
but your very hairs on your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Jesus sends his apostles out. But he also instructs not only his apostles, but his disciples. He tells us what we hear from him, even though it may be whispered, yelled out in proclamation. He tells us, if they treat me this way, they'll treat you that way. But God will not let it go unpunished. He tells us that we should be like him. Now, unfortunately, in this microwave world, that does not happen overnight. Because our Lord is so awesome. To be like him. If we had a hundred lifetimes to accomplish, could not but does not mean we should not walk that road to get there, to be like him. For it is enough to be like him. And even though in this world there will be persecution and lack of understanding, we are told, do not fear. Because God holds you with great value. He uses perhaps one of the least valuable animals, a sparrow, and says even in human concept, a couple of them are worth a penny. But in all of God's creation, there was never a time in his creation he did not say, and it is good. And even in that good creation, he says, you are worth more than much of my creation. God values you. God will not abandon you. God sees even the number of hairs on your head. And unfortunately for some of us, that makes God's job easier because we keep losing it. But at any he has to keep renumbering. Okay, I, I know, uh, trying to think of a name that's no one here, Frank, um, Frank used to have 1,732,312 hairs. Oops, he'd combed his hair. Now he has 12,311 because, but even then he knows what's going on in your life. How awesome is that? The God of creation, the God of the universe says, I know everything about you. And knowing everything about you, I love you, I care for you, and you're valuable to me. And all God's people said. So, just as the 12 were called, we have been called. We not, may not be called as apostles. Some of us are called as pastors. Some as deacons, some as 
Sunday school teachers, some as college uh, and university instructors or, or staff or whatever the calling may be. But in each of those callings, he has called us to be his disciples. He has called us to be like him. So our response should be, take my life and let it be concentrated all for thee. So as the band comes, we're going to sing that song. Stand with me as we pray. <laughs>